All right, so we'll get started, and if you all have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 John 4, and we'll read our text here in just a second. 1 John 4. So I'll give you the verses we're going to read here in just a minute. Back in the early 1900s through about the 1940s, 50s, there was a, a man named George Truett. I'm not exactly sure when he died. He was a really great preacher. I got a book about that thick of his sermons. He was kind of an evangelist. But uh, he just said, based on his knowledge of people and what they were, he frequently preached on the topic of fear again and again. And it was said one time he went to this major university, and when he asked them, you know, well, what topic would you like me to speak on? They said the student body had gotten together, and they signed a statement said, let the visiting preacher tell us how we may conquer fear. That's what they wanted to hear about. And it's kind of funny, I got a, out of curiosity, I got online, you can find anything online, and they've got a website, you know, when you have a fear, it's called a phobia. Well, they have a website called phobia.com. And now this guy's got 530 phobias that people have, but he won't just put any phobia on there. It has to be either found in a reference book or in a medical book. So there's people that you can't just make one up for him to put it on his little online thing. But uh, 530 of them, and some of them, I, I thought these were kind of humorous, just a few. I'm not going to read all 530. But uh, anuptophobia. Anuptophobia is a fear of being single. So, which if you are a woman, it might be because you have androphobia, which is a fear of men. Uh, two fears might go hand in hand. And pantherophobia is a fear of mother-in-laws. I mean, that's an actual fear. Mine's passed away. I've, I've got rid of that fear. No, she was a nice lady. And then there's kytophobia, which is a fear of hair. Now, that's not why I've lost mine. <laughs> I'd be glad to see some. And I like this one. It was sesquipedalophobia. That's a long word because that's the definition of a fear of long words. Who thinks these up? I don't know. And panophobia, that cover, that sums up everything. Because panophobia means you are afraid of everything. That's an actual fear. I mean, what kind of a life would that be to live? But it's starting to sum up the way the world is, isn't it? They're just about afraid of everything. So 530 documented fears that people have. And some are humorous, but really some are real to the people that have them. Or if that's how they made the list. Somebody's got a real fear of that. So let me ask you, where did all these fears, all, where did fear originate? So did fear originate with God? I mean, what does it say? We know it says God has not given us a spirit of fear. I'll tell you where it originated from, and that is Adam and was sin. It went all the way back to the garden. So when Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit, and it says they heard the voice of the Lord after they did that, and what's the next thing they did? It said they hid themselves. And so here comes the Lord in his daily round of fellowship and love with Adam, and he can't find him. I mean, not that he didn't know where he was at, but he has to call out. It says he called out to Adam. If you read Genesis, Adam, where art thou? And here's what his answer was. Adam says, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, and I hid myself. So, on that 530 list, what should be number one? What was the first thing we know that man feared was God? 
It wasn't a long word. It wasn't a mother-in-law, but God. And what was it he feared? He feared that punishment that God had pronounced upon him, right? And I'll tell you what, it's been a problem. That fear of punishment from God has been a problem with man ever since. Because what does it say in Hebrews? It says that we men have been in bondage to the fear of death all their lifetime. The devil, through a spirit of a fear of death, has kept all men in bondage. Is it death, though, that we fear so much? It's the judgment that follows, isn't it? That's really what people are afraid of when they're afraid. And I would just ask you today, are you afraid to die? Does the idea of the judgment of God bring terror into your heart, that judgment day? Or do you have confidence that all will be well with you on that day, that day of judgment? So sitting here today, I would just ask, would you like to know how you can approach that day with boldness? And everyone says, yes. Because I would. I'd like to know how to approach that day with boldness. And so the title of my message is the perfect love that casts out fear. So you're in 1 John 4. We want to read verses 16 through 19. And it says, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love, and we love him because he first loved us. So let me ask you a question. What is the kind of love that is going to cast out fear? Well, we just read it, didn't we? It's down in verse 18. It says that perfect love will cast out fear, doesn't it? So then the next question I would say, if looking at that, is how do I obtain? How do I get this perfect love that will cast out fear? Because I don't want to live in fear on that day of judgment, right? And we see that in verse 17. He says, where it says in King James, the first word in verse 17, herein, it really should be better translated, by this is our love made perfect. So it's saying, there's something that will make our love perfect. It's by this. And so we keep going back verses to find the answers. So perfect love will cast out fear. How is it made perfect? It says, by this. There is a way that this love will be made perfect. And that goes back to the end of verse 16. This is how he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Dwelling in God is the way our love will be made perfect or we can obtain that perfect love. So when we dwell in God, he's saying our love will be perfect and by that perfect love, fear will be cast out, that fear of the day of judgment. So before we get going, we need to get a couple terms so talking about perfect and dwelling, we need to understand what we're talking about so we don't, aren't confused. So perfect is used in these verses we just read three times, and it doesn't mean flawless. It doesn't mean no imperfections like we a lot of times would think of perfect, but it means developed and matured or brought to completion. 
It's, it's a love that is steadfastly set upon God. That's what it means by a perfect love. And so we know it doesn't mean perfect because in Philippians 3, what did Paul said? He said, I haven't arrived yet. I have not yet attained perfection, right? Didn't he? But was he afraid of that day of judgment? So if it means to be perfect, then Paul should have been afraid. But if you go back to Philippians 2, he says to live is Christ, but to die is what for him? He was not afraid of that day of judgment. But he said, I haven't totally arrived yet. So we know this perfect love can't mean that we have a love that is just flawless. There's no growth still that needs to take place. It doesn't mean that. It just means a mature, a developed love. And, you know, when a fruit's small, it's still, at that stage, it's perfect for where it is. It doesn't mean it doesn't keep growing, does it? As it grows at each stage, you could say it's complete for where it should be at. So there's room there for our growth in love. But we can have perfect love from the start. In that sense, a complete love. The other thing I want to, we need to understand here is what he means in verse 16 by dwelling in love. And let me get, I haven't done chalkboard in a while. I don't even know if this thing works. So what does it mean to dwell in love? And the first thing is you'll... <clears throat> We'll see all of this. You'll know God's love. For yourself. And we see that in verse 19. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And so that's number one. That's the number one thing you have to know. And the second thing is because of that. Because of that love, to dwell means you'll love the Lord and obey. And that's also verse 19. We love him. We will love the Lord. And the third thing is you'll demonstrate that love. By loving others. And that is verses 11 to 12, and I want to look at those. <clears throat> so, that's what I believe biblically it means to dwell in love. You'll know God's love for yourself. And then as a result of that, verse 19... We love, but we don't love him naturally, do we? We're, we naturally, everyone born into this world, hate God. What do you want to, that's what the Bible teaches. We are his enemies, and he is our enemy. But when you be, become to know God's love for yourself, then that produces a love for the Lord and obedience, which is your love for the Lord is then demonstrated by loving others. So look at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 4. He says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So he's saying if you know that God's love for yourself, number one up there, then we ought, we have an obligation also to love one another. In verse 12, it says, no man has seen God at any time. But he says, but if we love one another, we haven't seen God, but here's how we can know that he lives in us and that we live in him. 
And here's we're talking about dwelling, right? He says, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, then God dwells in us, and his love is what? Brought to completion by our loving other people. It's proof that he's in us, and it'll be brought to completion as we love others. So the first point, though, I'm going to spend some time on, this right here is critical. You have got to know God's love for you. And that's what we have at the beginning. Look in verse 16. He starts off here, John writes in verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has to us or for us. Because here's the thing. If you don't have this right here, and you're trying to do these two right here, you know what you're doing? You're doing it, it becomes a works religion. You're trying to do things here to make this real. And a lot of people live their Christianity that way. They do a lot of good deeds, they're running around, helping people out and all that, they're hoping that somehow come that day of judgment, God will love them as a result of that. And they got things upside down biblically. And that's why John starts here. We have known and believed the love that God has towards us. And actually, there's some things, I don't like to bring the whole Greek stuff up all the time, but this is one case here where it doesn't come through in our translation, but there is a double we, so to speak. There's a we in the verb, and they put a we in front of that, and the reason they do that when these writers do it is they want to give emphasis. And so John just doesn't say, and we have believed. He says, and we, us, he's saying me and all you Christians that are reading this, that I'm writing to, we, we have believed. There's an emphasis there. We have believed and come to know the love that God has. And so every Christian, he's including all of us in this room that call themselves Christians. We should know and trust in that love that God has for us. But I think a lot of people really don't. I think it's a strong hope. They really hope. God loves them. They like the idea of God loving them and going to heaven. But they just really don't have a strong assurance. And John says, hey, we should have it. Not going to get it. We should have a knowing of God's love for us. And that word know there means we realize it. We understand that God has a love for us. And so that word for know, usually with it, there is something, the person that knows is putting value on the thing that it is known, that it knows. The person knowing puts a value on the thing known in God's love. And what that does is it establishes a relationship. So when you understand and know God's love, it, you have a relationship now with God and his love. It's not some mathematical knowing like 2 plus 2 equals 4, just some object that you know. No, it's I know that God loves me. And as a result of that, that's why John says we have known and believed. Because once you get your eyes open to see that, that God loves me, then you put your trust in him, right? You commit yourself to that love, don't you? You commit yourself. That's what faith is. That's the word for believe and trust. So I know God loves me, and I am willing to place my life, place my trust in that love that he has for me. That's what John's trying to get 
across there. So what is this love that God has for us? So how is it shown? Is it shown by creation, by prosperity, by a good feeling you have all the time? Oh, I know God loves me because I can just feel him all over me. Is that, is that what it is? Is it by family? Is it because he heals you? I mean, some of those are ways, yes, we could see God's love, but how does God define his love first and foremost? So look up in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 4 of 1 John. It says, and this was manifested. And when we say something manifested, what do we mean? We see it, right? So here it says, and here was, here's how it was seen. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us. How? Because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we who were dead might what? Might live through him. And he says, herein is love. Or it could be said, this is love. Here is your definition. It's not that we love God, but what? But that he loved us and did something, didn't he? He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. And so God's love is seen by us and defined how? How is it defined for us? By the cross. And you know what the problem is? When you can stand up here and say that and it no longer moves us. There's a problem there. I mean, what is John talking about in Revelations when he says you have left your first love? You've just lost what, that vision of what Jesus did for you on the cross. So have we forgotten how unclean and bankrupt we were in God's eyes and wicked sinners? Have we forgotten all of our sins, all of our lying, all of our thieving, all of our drunkenness, all of our partying, all of our living in pleasure, all of these sins, and we're looking up and we're looking and seeing the tidal wave, God's judgment, a tsunami is coming our way, isn't it? And it's terrifying. It was to me. My sins, I realized, if I die, I am going to go to hell. Judgment, it's hell for eternity. A tsunami's coming my way. And the cross is Jesus stood in front of us and shielded us. And he took that on him. That tsunami that was headed our way, it overwhelmed him. Took in the judgment that was coming our way. And listen, the world doesn't understand that, do they? The cross means nothing to them. So they ask questions like, well, why does God allow suffering? Why do I have cancer if God is love? Why am I always broke? Why is this world so crazy we live in? Where's this God of love you're talking about? And they're looking, aren't they? The world is really looking for some token of God's love. They're looking for some encouragement. They're looking for some hope in this world, aren't they? Of God's love. And his answer is what? It's the cross. So those of you who have seen that movie of Corey Temboon called The Hiding Place, you know, she's in that Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her and her sister Betsy get sent there for hiding Jews in World War II. And it is one nasty place. It's them and 10,000 other women living in this camp. And so they were raised in a Christian home. They were saved people. So her sister Betsy in the dorm is having a Bible study. Conducting a Bible study, I mean, it's cold, it's nasty, there's lice. So there's several women gathered around, and there's this one lady, she's, list, she's laying on her bunk. 
listening to what's being, what's being said. And she says this, what a lot of people will say to Christians. If your God is such a good God, why does he allow this kind of suffering? She lifted her hands, and she had bandages wrapped around her hands, and she tore off the bandages. And there are her gnarled, broken fingers she's holding up. Why does he allow this kind of suffering? And she says, I'm the first violinist of the sympathy orchestra. Did your God will this? That's what he asked me. So she's saying, where's this loving God you're talking about? And in that movie, no one answered. And then Corey Tamboon steps up beside her sister and said this. She says, we can't answer that question. All we know is that our God came to this earth, became one of us, suffered with us, was crucified and died, and he did that for love. So listen, the world, people, can raise all of these questions on why does a loving God allow suffering? But when a person's eyes are open to see the truth of the Bible, that this God they're accusing of having a lack of love, when their eyes are open to see what he did on that cross out of pure love, every mouth is stopped. He came down here and rescued us and got nothing out of it. There was nothing. He didn't need us. It says in Job, if we sin, it doesn't affect him. If we're righteous down here, it doesn't affect him. We've got to see he doesn't need us at all. He really never did. There's nothing gained by the Lord Jesus Christ coming down here and walking this earth and being humiliated, total humiliation the way he was. It was all pure love for us to rescue us. And so how in the Bible, love is constantly demonstrated how? By sacrifice. So Abraham does what? He shows his love to God by what he's willing to offer his most precious gift, his son Isaac, on that altar. Demonstrates his love by that kind of sacrifice. It says of Jacob that he served seven years to marry Rachel. And it said they seemed to him but a few days for the love he had for her. Sacrificed seven years of his life because of the love he had. And Mary... How did Mary show in John, it talks about, how did she show her love for the Lord Jesus Christ? It says she anointed his feet, not with just a little bit of perfume. It says very costly ointment, a precious gift to her. That's how we show love. You know how much? That was worth at least $50,000, a year's wages. Some of you guys, that's probably $200,000, right? But it was expensive at least, $50,000. So love is shown how? How do we know people's love? By costly sacrifices, don't we? And so John 3.16, that we're all so familiar, it says that God so loved the world. And so how did he demonstrate it? He gave the most costly sacrifice he could give, his only beloved son. Not a son, someone else's son. Not a son that he had to create, but the eternal son of his love, the beloved he gave him, sent him into this world. The son that he loved more than, I mean, how much you guys, uh, girls, moms and dads, you love your kids. And when I hear some young person dying, I'm just thinking, I cannot imagine that. Having one of, one of my children die or be suffering. And yet God did that. He sent, we don't know that kind of love that he had for the Lord Jesus Christ. We will never know because we're fallen 
We'll never understand that. We'll never fully understand that sacrifice that he gave in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer cruel agony at the hands of people that hate him. Could you imagine sending your child somewhere to help someone out and he know he's going to give his life and these people hate his guts? And this man said this, I thought it was good, every wretched hell-bound sinner when embracing the cross. What, what are you embracing when you embrace the cross? You're embracing God's love, aren't you? That is how we know his love. So when a person embraces the cross, they know and believe, as John is saying in 16, they are truly embracing and believing and knowing that God loves them. And his love is always, almost always associated with the cross. Revelation 1.5 says, To him that loved us and washed us from our sins, washed us in his own blood. That is how God loved us. I mean, what if it just said, For God so pitied the world, and it ended there? Who cares? We needed more than pity, didn't we? We needed love demonstrated. And he did that for us. And embracing the cross is to see Jesus as your only hope for a lost soul. But I'm saying to do that, to be able to do that, that is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not a matter of reading the words. It can only happen one way, and that is by the Holy Spirit revealing him to us. Because what, when, when Peter in Matthew 16 made that great confession, Jesus said, hey, flesh and blood, you weren't smart enough to figure out who I am, Peter. But my Father in heaven revealed it to you. It has to be a revelation. This right here has got to be a revelation from God. Listen, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 says, Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is we could just preach that. I'm telling you, you might get tired of it, but that is what it's all about, really. That's the beginning. He said that, and he goes on to say, Jesus Christ and him crucified, which none of the princes of this world knew. They didn't understand. Because he goes on to say, for had they known it, who he was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They saw what everyone else saw, didn't they? But they didn't see. He said if they would have known who they were crucifying, who he was, they wouldn't have done it. But God hid that from their eyes. But he goes on to say, hey, but he's revealed those things to us by his spirit. But God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to have God's love revealed to you. It's not something you're just going to know because you read it. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Oh, you can mouth the words, but to know Jesus is Lord in a saving way can only happen to a person by the Holy Spirit. So here, Jesus dying on the cross to the world is just a cold, hard fact at best, isn't it? Until the Holy Spirit makes it real. I tell them guys in prison, look, I believe Jesus was the Son of God growing up as a kid, as a Catholic boy. I mean, I really did believe it. I wasn't, never struggled with that. 
I believe he died on a cross. I believe he died for the sins of the world. I believe he rose from the, the dead. And I believe he died for the sins of the world. All of that. I really believed it. And I was going to hell. Because I had never believed it in a sense of putting my trust in it. And knowing that it was for me. It was just something they taught us at church. You know, we, we used to have, this is, I hate to even repeat this, but back in our day when we were driving around doing our partying, this buddy of mine, his big thing was he, he'd roll down the window and yell at other people, at other teenagers when we were driving around, Jesus loves you. He had no clue what he was saying. He's really, it's really a mocking thing. Well, people like to hear that Jesus loves you, but you don't understand it unless you understand the revelation that it's a love that God has for you. And that only comes, as I said before, is by the Holy Spirit. Put something there in 1 John. So I've already read a few verses that, or quoted a few verses, but turn to Romans chapter 5, if you would. So how was the love of God given to us? I say only by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't come from us. Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 5, it says this, And hope makes not ashamed. And here's why our expectation of God coming for us will never make us ashamed. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad. Really, that word means poured out. Talked about this a few months back. It means it is poured out in a fusion, not just a little bit, as we said, not just a trickle, but it is poured out where? In our hearts. So, how, But how do we know how it's poured out? How is it revealed to us? What does it say? By the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And what is it he shows us in the love of God? Verse 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But here it is, and only the Holy Spirit can show you that. But God commends, he proves, commends his love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel, isn't it? So listen, the love of God, which is really the only true love, has got to be poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then it's made to be a living experience, something we know, we've experienced, we understand. And then we're able to trust in it, aren't we? And so it's not saying that the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts. He's the agent, but what is he saying should be poured into our hearts? God's love. And in that, it's the knowledge, verse 8, that Christ died for us. So let me ask you the question here today, because I know there's no way everybody in this room is born again. I don't know who isn't, but I would assume not. But let's ask all of us here, even those of us who profess to be Christians, have you known and believed that God really loves you? Because honestly, I think people struggle with that way more than they'll admit. They really do. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, listen to what he said. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And Paul said, which is what we have to be able to say, who loved me, he said. 
He didn't make it everybody. He said, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, he said. That's where it's got to be with us. And I would just say, if it's not that way for you and you're honest, honestly there, no one's asking anyone to raise their hands, you need to pray and ask God by the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see the great love that he has for you. And it's seen in the cross. It's how it is seen. That he had to die for your sins, not your neighbors, not your mothers, but your sins. And ask God by the Holy Spirit to make that real to you. So young people wouldn't remember this, but I remember back at these faith groups, we used to sing a song, Open My Eyes, Lord, I Want to See Jesus. It was a prayer song. To know him and trust him and say that I love him. Open my eyes, Lord, and help me to listen. Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus. I see the stripes on your back. I see the nails in your hands. I see the judgment of sin placed on an innocent lamb. I see your blood flowing down, making me white as snow. I see the tears in your eyes. I see the love in your heart. We used to sing that song. It's a great song. It's a prayer song. Don't we need God to open our eyes to see that? Back to 1 John 4, if you'll go back there, verse 16. And here's the significance of this. When we know and believed, we have known and believed that love that God has to us, when, when your eyes are truly open to that, guess what that does for you? That lets you know what? That God is on your side, doesn't it? When someone loves you that way, that you can cast all your cares upon him. Why? Because he's your father. He cares for you. When you realize that, You can say, God, I know then that God is concerned about my welfare. He treats me kindly and he truly loves me. And here's what we need to know. If he wouldn't spare his greatest gift for us, then everything underneath that, your healing, your prosperity, he's not going to spare that either, is he? If he wouldn't spare, that's what Paul says in Romans 8. If he spared not his son, how much will he not freely, if he freely gave his son, and all the lesser things are nothing, in a sense. But we got to start here. You've got to start there. And you've got to start at the cross. And see how worthless and wicked and depraved and hellbound you were and what God was willing to do for you. Meditate on what happens during the crucifixion in the garden. Because here's the thing. If you struggle with that and you don't know that, you don't know that God is on your side because you don't know and believe that he loves you, you will fear him. That's what Adam did, didn't he? That's what we talked about. And when you fear somebody, you know what? You have animosity towards them. Look in verse 18. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has what? Torment, or the word can be punishment. You realize he's not on my side. He is out to punish me. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, this fear of, the fear of God, that is why the natural man is an enemy of God, because he feels God is against him. 
And when, you, and when you feel God is against you, he says, you can't love him. And that's what we're reading here. Perfect love will cast out fear. You can't have a fear of judgment and know this, that God loves you and the cross. You can't have both. He's not talking about the fear that is just a respect for God and his holiness and who he is. He's talking about this fear, this craven fear that he is going to send me to hell. He's going to do me in. He's going to judge me. He doesn't love me. You've got, we should all, we need to have a complete mature love that we know that is not the case. God loves me. So I'm spending so much time on number one. Because listen, in Revelation 16, you know what happens? The judgments are coming down on this earth. It's a future thing that's going to happen. Plagues are coming. Judgments are falling. And what do men do? Do they repent? Do they glorify God? Do they think, man, I need to get, get my act right? No, they don't. You know what they do? It says in Revelation 16, they blaspheme God. And why is that? Because they know in their conscience is telling them, you are a sinner. And these judgments coming down on you are what you deserve and that God is your enemy. They don't know that he loves them. They can't believe that. It's too late for most of them, right? And so what's their result? Their hatred comes out in blasphemy against him. So that's the opposite of what we're talking when you know and believe the love God has for you. Because, listen, when we're in that case, what John's saying here in 16, when we know and believe that God loves us, cares for it, then guess what happens for Christians? When trouble comes, they know that his love is not diminished. Because here's what we have in Romans 8. Paul writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Once you know it, nothing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Paul said, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you have that knowledge, when you know and believe that, Nothing can separate you from it. And so it's imperative if you don't have it here today or you're real shaky on it, or you think, man, I hope he loves me. I'm just really not that certain. You need to get certain. It's got to start there or nothing else will work. Go back to the cross if that's what you need to do. Because it says, he goes on to say in verse 16 there, we have known and believed the love that God has to it. He goes on to say that God is love. That's his nature. It's God's nature to show mercy. Here's what it says in Lamentations 3. He says he doesn't afflict the sons of men willingly. In other words, that's not what he delights to do, is to punish anyone, and especially, we'll see, to go to hell. In Isaiah 28... It says when he has to judge his people, this is a strange work for him. It's not something he wants to be doing. So believe me, God does not delight in sending anybody to hell. It is not his pleasure, even the ones that go. So turn to Ezekiel 18, if you would. And I would say, listen to this, Ezekiel 18. If you're someone that thinks I'm... I'm afraid of the Lord. I'm afraid he won't accept me. I'm afraid I'm not one of the elect. 
God might turn me away. How could he love someone like me? Ezekiel 18, beginning in verse 20, the Lord, say, the Lord says this, or Ezekiel says this, The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Verse 21, but if the wicked will turn, there has to be repentance from all his sins that he has committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely, what? Live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he has committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he has done, he shall live. And look what he says in verse 23. God says, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? No, is the answer, saith the Lord God. And not, this is where God's pleasure would be, not that he should return from his ways and live. But when the righteous turn away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All his righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he has trespassed and in his sin that he has sinned, in them shall he die. Well, you say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Here's this wicked sinner, been a sinner for he's 75 years old, the town drunk, and decides he's going to turn to the Lord and get things right. And then here's this other person's live a totally righteous life, and all of a sudden decides he wants to go out one night and party on the town and dies. And he's going to go to hell for one day, and this other guy's 75 years? He says, your way is not equal. And he says, oh, no, Israel, is not my way equal and your ways unequal? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies in it, for his iniquity that he has done shall he die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he has committed and does that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Why, verse 28? Because he considers something. He considers where his sin is taking him to that judgment day. He considers and turns away from all his transgressions that he has committed and he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal, and are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent, and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin." Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. God's pleading with them, for why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. I mean, why would anyone in this room that's living in sin or backslidden or is in any state, why, could, why would you hesitate to think God would not accept you? The fact you're willing to turn from your transgressions and turn to him is because he's doing a work in you. He will receive you. Right? You've got to repent. This, number one, doesn't work for people still living in their sins. You've got to repent. But back to 1 John 4. 
He wants us to live. Let's read again. We looked at verse 9 earlier, but let's read it again in light of, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. And look in 1 John 4, 9, he says the same thing. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son into the world. And what does it say there at the end? That we might live because we were dead. And that's his love. That's his heart. That we might live through him. So the second way that God's love dwells in us is by our loving others. Read verse 12 again. He says, no man has seen God at any time. If, if we love one another, then we have this dwelling. Loving the Lord by obeying, which is demonstrated by loving others. That's how we will dwell in God's love. God dwells in us, and his love is made complete in us. So when we understand, number one, God's love for us, and then show that love to others, our love is complete. Or if you want to use the word King James, is perfect. So how does that happen? Turn to Matthew 5. And we'll see. This is what he's talking about. Matthew 5, verse 43, it says this. You have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, he says, love who? Your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? So that you can show you're a son of God. It's just a demonstration, not to make yourself one, but it's that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Because God shows his love, even to wicked people. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For he says, if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even publicans so? And here we have the word again. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what's he saying there? We've, we've got to do what it's saying there. We've got to love our enemies. And we do not naturally, it's a supernatural thing that has to take place here by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not naturally love our enemies. We talk about them and avoid them, Right? We've got to love them. We have to bless people that curse us and do good to those that hate us. Who does that? But we better do it, hadn't we? Pray for those that despitefully use us because that is how we dwell in the love of God. When we do that and we're demonstrating the Father's love to the world. Because listen, our love has got to be, what's Jesus saying here? Our love has got to be above the world's love, doesn't it? Because what do we typically do? I mean, it's, he's saying, hey, you, you'll salute somebody that likes you, won't you? And you'll love those that do good to you. He's saying we got to be beyond that because the world won't be nice to someone that hates them. Even when they should. <laughs> I have an uncle that his boy, he thought he did him wrong. It's his own flesh and blood son. And he totally cut him off, never saw him till the day he died. 
because he offended. It was a nickel-dime thing he was offended over. That's the way the world, they'll even treat their own who they should love. But he's saying, hey, at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your righteousness, and it would include your love here, does not exceed, go way beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees, he says, we won't make it in. It's not an option. He says, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. So if we're not praying for those that hate us and doing good and blessing others and loving our enemies, it's all over. Now, like I said at the beginning, does that mean we have to have perfectly done that? No, but that is the way characteristic of our lives. And when we miss it, we're getting back at that. We cannot be holding criticism, grudges, and hating people, and unforgiveness, and think we'll make it in, because we're violating this. And to dwell in love is how you get that complete love that will give you boldness on the day of judgment. So if we're not living what we just read there on the Sermon on the Mount, we won't have boldness on the day of judgment. You will be afraid, because you'll realize you're what Paul said. He says at the end in chapter 7, you're on that sand. He says, if you hear and do what I say, you're on a rock. You'll have boldness on the day of judgment. You hear what he says there in Matthew chapter 5, and we decide not to do it? We will be on the sand come judgment day. We'll be afraid. So look what he says. That's what he's saying back in 1 John 4. That's what it means then. He says, by this, by dwelling in God, our love is made perfect. Verse 17, 1 John 4, 17, is made complete. That, and here he says that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. And look what he says at the end of verse 17. How can we have boldness in the day of judgment? Because as he is, so are we in this world. So Jesus loves the Father, knows the Father loves him, lives in obedience to the Father. And as we do that, by the Sermon on the Mount, demonstrating our love to others. Then he says we can have boldness. That's what he's talking about there. As he is, so are we in the world. That is how we can have boldness on that day of judgment because it is coming. It should put a terror in people's heart. That day is coming, and how we stand is going to be based on how we are living now, isn't it? That word for boldness means cheerful, couraged. And so I would say, if you died today, and I mean every person in there does not know that they won't, will you have cheerful courage when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Because you know of his love for you, you love him, and you demonstrate that love by loving others. That is how you will have boldness, cheerful courage, standing before him on that judgment day. Listen, this is one of my best things I have read. I've never forgotten it. But Hudson Taylor's wife, he was a great missionary to China. And I mean, these people suffered, and they sacrificed to bring the gospel to these people in China back in the day. And his wife was dying of tuberculosis. And my point in this story, I'll say it before I say it, is we think we can't have this perfect love, complete love, and we can't have this boldness on the day of judgment. Listen to her testimony. His wife's dying of tuberculosis, and he knelt, knelt by her bed, and he said to her, My darling, do you know you are dying? And she said, I am so sorry, dear. And it said she paused, half correcting herself for venturing to feel sorry. 
And he says, well, you're not, you're not sorry to go to be with Jesus, are you? And then he said, I will never forget the look she gave. And looking right into my eyes, she said, oh, no, it is not that. You know, darling, there has not been a cloud between my soul and my Savior for 10 years past. I cannot be sorry to go to him, but I am sorry to leave you alone at this time. I thought, what a testimony. Not a cloud between her and her Savior for 10 years. She's not the least bit afraid to die. I'd say she had cheerful confidence when she passed off the scene, wouldn't you? I really would. I thought, I want that to be my testimony on my deathbed or however it happens. Oh, there's not been a cloud. I've been dwelling in love. I've been meditating on his love for me. I've got that assurance, that knowledge in my heart. And I love the Lord as a result. And I've demonstrated that in my life by loving others. That is what will give us that. That is my whole point today. That's the perfect love that will cast out fear. Because here's the thing. We're talking about that day of judgment. You know who's going to be the judge? It's like John Abel, there's the throne, and he's sitting there. You know who's going to be the judge we're standing before? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to be Judge Judy or some judge we don't know anything about, is it? That day of judgment, who are we going to be standing before? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the thing. If we don't know about this, his love for us, his dying love for us, you think he won't know that? And if we haven't been loving him and demonstrating that love to others, but if we have been, oh, we will be so cheerful and have cheerful courage to see him. You're the one I've been walking with. You're the vine I've been abiding in. You're the one that's enabled me by your grace to live this life like you lived it by the Holy Spirit. It's called the Spirit of Christ. He's called the Spirit of Christ. And we'll have confidence before him as our judge. So we do that, it'll do what? It will cast out, drive away any fear we have of punishment. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ on that day to people like that, to people like us, will have only words of praise, won't he? Turn to one last scripture. Turn to Matthew 25, because here's the day of judgment. And here, it's interesting how God is going to determine who are the sheep and who are the goats. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. And when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's what they did to demonstrate their love for him and others. I was hungered and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, 
When saw we thee unhungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we sick or in prison and came to thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren. What's his command? Love one another. He says, you have done it unto me. And then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you showed me no love. You gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. And then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? And he shall answer them, saying, Truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not unto one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. Verse 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. That word punishment is the same word as torment in 1 John 4 where it says fear has torment. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life of eternal. So what's the basis of that judgment going to be? It's going to be dwelling in love, isn't it? What we've been talking about. There it is. You think loving other people is not a big deal? It is a really big deal. So does that day, reading that, bring it all over you? It should, all of us. And we want to have cheerful courage on that day, knowing what? That we dwell in that love of God when that day comes. So I'd say we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will make the love of God to us more and more real. Like I said, it can be complete where you're at and still grow. And your assurance can grow. Because Paul in Ephesians 3, he prayed an interesting prayer. He says, I bow my knees to the Father that he would strengthen you in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. And he says he's praying that, that you be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit so that you can be rooted and grounded in love and also so that you can comprehend the love of Christ, which passes knowledge and be filled with the fullness of God. So it is a work of the Holy Spirit, and Paul is praying that for the Christians in Ephesus. They'd be strengthened in their inner man by the Holy Spirit that they can comprehend and understand the love of which passes understanding. I think we need to make that our prayer, don't, don't you? Understand that love of God for us. And the second thing we need to pray that we're in, be enabled by that same Holy Spirit to show the love of God to others. That's what he says, when you abide in the vine, that's that fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit is love. And he says, if you have that, he's going to purge you to bring forth more fruit but he says, if you don't have any fruit, if you're not yielding to me, you'll be cut off and cast into the fire. So it's important that we abide, it's the same word, to dwell in love. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So what is this perfect love that casts out fear? It's this. 
dwelling in the love of God. That is it. And it's these three aspects. We have to, first of all, be know and understand and realize God's love for us. And when we have that, then as a result of that, we go out and demonstrate that to others. That's what it means to dwell in the love of God. And that is what produces by this, that perfect love that casts out fear and will give us boldness on the day of judgment is produced. Amen? All right. Well, let's pray. Father, I just pray for our church here, all of us here, Lord, that as Paul prayed that you, by the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that you will open our eyes and give us a fuller, fuller, more real understanding of your love for us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross. I just ask you'll open all of our eyes to see what he did. And for those here that aren't saved, Lord, that you'll just open their eyes and that they can see that that day of judgment is something they should be afraid of. It will bring punishment. And I ask that you'll just grant them the gift of repentance, that they can turn and turn to you and live. Because you said you have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I also ask, Lord, I also pray that you'll just enable us to be aware that we will be judged by our actions that we do in this life. It will be determined our next life. You'll remind us of that and that we will show your love, as you say in Matthew 5, to our enemies, to those that hate us, to those that persecute us, that by your grace and by the Holy Spirit, you'll enable us to show that love and thus to dwell in you and our love can be complete. I just thank you that you'll do that for all of us here. And we just receive that from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, how he loves you and me. What more could he?